Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with Duke alum Teos Avedia. Hey Teos, how's it going? Let's go, Duke. I had the best time. Our basketball team has won six games in a row after a very kind of up and down season, uh, beating Carolina. This is all dedicated to Mike Shea. Uh, And so, yes, it is all things that are bad in life feel like they're not that bad because you have beaten your your rival. In, in college sports, uh, it is like defeating the big boss in an encounter. And so it just feels like I played like the greatest TTRPG game, even though I was watching other people hustle and I was enjoying a beverage on my sofa. The, hey, you know, whatever gets you through your week, your weekend, you, you have to you have to take these victories. Yeah, and what's yeah. going to get me through my week is being able to record a podcast with you. Same so here. let's let's do this. Let's get this going. So we have a listener corner question. This is from Chappy Thoughts on Mastodon. And Chappy Thoughts says, this might be wild, but would it be better for game balance if all base classes were half casters and all full casters and full marshals broken up into features? And we're sort of trying to parse what this question means, but two things uh, I, there was a big thread on game balance started by Dennis Detweiler, I think on, on Twitter. And so that caught my eye. Plus this question talking about game balance and, you know, maybe play testing differently. So I I wanted to, to, to talk about this anyway. So I, Am I, at this point, I have to acknowledge my own bias. And I when I see the word wild, that's what I want in, in playtesting right now. I want a major change. Not because I think 5e is bad, or 5e is broken, or 5e is wrong. I just want to see something different. I want to see D&D grow and expand and change and morph. And I want Wizards of the Coast to be at the forefront of that. And I understand that they might not want to change the game too much, but at least during the playtesting, I, I want to see some attempts at that to, to show me something different. And I would love to see this tried. All base classes be half casters, even rogues. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have a subclass of rogue that that is a half caster. Um, fighter, we have a, a subclass or more. Um, that that yeah. is a a caster. So I would love to see that and see what you can do with that concept and then push toward less reliance on spells or more reliance on spells within the subclasses of those classes. Yeah, it's fascinating also as we look at these other RPGs, right? When I look at Shadow of the Demon Lord and today we're going to talk about fate, like how different some games are at treating things that make the constructs of D&D look so heavy, like spells can just seem so heavy through the context of some games, or they can seem super mm-hmm. light through the context of a few others. Um, and you can see the wild uh, attempts that D&D has done in the past, right, with 4E and how that went, mm-hmm. where you could argue that it all felt very spell-like, right, or, or things were... Then I had a great discussion on Twitter with Rob Donahue about, you know, what is it about 4E that would cause people to treat it very mechanically? But if you look at the actual powers of 4E, they're super descriptive. They have a really cool, neat text. I mean, I know it is a little bit like a Magic the Gathering description, but it, you know, like the card text, mm-hmm. but it but it is cool flavor text. It, it, it really gives you an inspiring concept of what you're doing with your power. And that's true of whether it's, you know, shooting lightning out of your fingers or whether you're, you know, pushing someone with your shield and then moving into the opening you created. It's very evocative, and so it can be. And and, and your your powers are doing things like you know shoving your enemy or, or pinning him to the ground or whatever. And if you look at like older editions, like all we did was just cast like two spells, and then we were out. And then everybody else is just doing the exact same thing over and over again with their martial side. So it's wildly creative, but yet didn't feel that way. And so there's so much that is right. the feel of the game, the balance of the game. Mm-hmm. And 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 yeah, that's the thing that I think makes me uh, make it makes my soul hurt a bit. If I'm <laughs> really honest, like I'm not being dramatic, it makes a bit hurt when I think of D right. being the same for end of time. Right when they say like one D and D forever, it's like not only does it invoke Lord of the Rings, but it feels like it's just like 
Like I don't, I want innovation. I want periodic upheaval of the apple cart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same position right now. And I think it would be interesting for, for the creators of the game to tell us what they think about balance mm -hmm. um, in the sense of, do they want all classes to sort of be similar or do they not care? And, and th that's a perfectly fine answer too, to not care about game balance because the game plays well enough that you don't need balance in every area as long as the overall game balances the player's fun and expression of their wishes at the table. And that's a big thing is that balance can mean a lot of things, right? So things can be balanced and they can still be swingy. So we know that the, mm -hmm. the parameters are between these two posts and that is balanced because we know we're gonna operate within that level, right? But other kinds of balance mm -hmm. are really problematic. So like encounter balance, which, which seemed like a lot of what Dennis was talking about in that thread, you know, we want to have unpredictable results so that there is play in it so that players can do wild, neat things with their characters. And then that can translate to victory or failure and tell great stories. But also we want the DM to know, I'm gonna create this really tough challenge and that most cases you would run it, it would be a tough challenge. If you go to do that and you have no idea, as many 5e DMs feel, whether it's going to challenge their party or not, then that is a sense of balance that's not there, right? And similarly, mm -hmm. if every multi-class build involves taking a level of, you know, sorcerer uh, or it's, you know, it has the word paladin in it somewhere, like then we go, I think we are off a bit, right? Or, or if right. people just won't play a certain build of a class, right? Because that's just mm -hmm. seen as being disappointed, disappointing and not measuring up. Well, that is problem because we're not within those parameters, right? Like classes can be good at right. different things, but if they're not, if you're just, <laughs> we've failed yeah. there, right? Right. And, and I mean, a lot of people, a lot of players, a lot of game masters, I think, see balance and they're like, well, as long as the group that I'm playing with is cool with what's going on, yeah, we have the super optimized character, but that's fine because the other characters under the other players understand that and they work around that. But maybe somebody who is a game designer who goes to conventions and runs games for 50 different players over the weekend who bring their characters. And at every table, you have the same builds going on and on and on. That's where you can see that you might be able to fix something at your own individual table or deal with that at your own individual table while the game itself is not dealing with it in the same way or dealing with it properly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, going back to that original question, I think that, that you can do things where you say like, well, all classes are built a particular way, but you do that at a cost, right? You, 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 you mm -hmm. pay that off by also giving up on, on some of what makes wild class design fun. Um, and so, and, and if we take that to like the concept of the Druid, right? One of the difficulties of the Druid is we want it to be a full caster and to shape change. And as soon as we say, well, what if we don't? Then you end up with such a pigeonholed class that it now becomes something different, right? Now it's like this beast transforming thing that that's all it does. And it loses all the spell utility and the curing and the what. Mm -hmm. And do we really want that, right? And, and now are we just describing like a type of barbarian, right? Or so, you know, so... Those are hard questions and there aren't necessarily perfect answers yeah. to them, but the, that's what you end up with when you, right. when you play with that. <laughs> and what Chappie Thoughts might be saying too is, you know, you can have the, have the Druid be a half caster and in one subclass of it, those half casting slots mm. are wild shapes. In another uh, subclass, those half casting slots are spells. For the fighter, those half caster slots are your special maneuvers that you can do and or you can build different things so that might be what features are and then you can you can substitute things in and out for for them and i think that would be a cool design mm -hmm. to look at yeah yeah certainly could work and, and and that's the kind of thing that i do like it's funny seeing the super negative reaction overall against the druid because i'm actually really happy that wizards has gone from the normal design and tried something out. Uh, and I hope they try mm -hmm. a, a version, you know, beyond this that that kind of adjusts it a bit to see whether there's something in there that could really work because I like that concept as mm -hmm. we said, but we'll see. Yep. Awesome. So thank you, Chappy Thoughts. 
uh, and you can all hit us with questions or comments on Twitter, Mastodon, our YouTube channel, directly emailing us uh, at mastering dungeons at mastering mastering dnd at gmail.com and any other ways that you can reach out to Teos, myself, or the show. Let's get right now to our news and commentary section where we get more information on the DD movie that is about three and a half weeks away. So I'm starting to get a little excited. To today. I did something that I I don't ever remember doing, and that is, what am I going to wear to the D and D movie? I don't. I rarely think about what I'm going to wear as I'm putting on what I'm going to wear. And I was like thinking, oh, should I wear a D and T shirt? Yeah, that's how excited I am about wow. this movie coming out. Peak yeah. levels of uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I the, like that. Peak of wardrobe. I, well, I so, I found myself seeing whether I could buy advance tickets yet. The answer was no, at least mm-hmm. in my area. And I'm like, oh, you know, like I just like I'm ready to, you know, like I want to know where I'm yep. sitting. And I haven't been to a movie since pre-pandemic, so uh, th- this is a, a very big thing for me. But um, yeah, th- this article, there's an article in Variety, and I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it as a read. It covers a variety of topics. It's it's nicely done. There's some really nice back and forth between Goldstein and Daly. The the two directors and writers of the D&D movie that shows, you know, how they develop their friendship, what D&D has meant to them over time, uh, how they view Hollywood male actor egos. And I had to laugh because I read this and I, and I share with my wife kind of what they said about sort of how a lot of males, what they're really saying was a lot of male actors, especially leads that you say to them, hey, be vulnerable. And you'd think that as actors, they would be like, cool, I'm, you know, that's a neat thing to do. The actors will say, uh, I don't know how to do that, or I don't want to do that because like their whole mentality is be strong, right? Like show off. Mm-hmm. I can be an action hero. I can be a whatever. And, and so that a lot of actors, it's really hard to do that. And then the next day I, by mistake, you know, opened some new tab in Microsoft edge and it fed me some headline of like D and D movie crushes male egos or something like that. And I laughed so hard. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that was just one of the many things that they talked about. Uh, they the the interviewer was talking about if they would do more of the movies, and the you know the Goldstein and Daly were like, well, you know, I don't know. And the the interviewer said, well, you have the word dragon eggs written up on that whiteboard. And Goldstein <laughs> said, well, that could be anything. And Daly said, yeah, that's a thirty million dollar comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they finally admitted, you know, look, if we are fortunate enough to to get a great turnout for this movie and it does well. Obviously we were game for getting back into the D and D world. So um, that was pretty funny, but you know, overall it was a really interesting article because they do dig down into things we've been talking about for since the first D and D movie came out, mm-hmm. which is how do you, how do you create a D and D movie? That's going to be a success for everyone. Right. And you, you know, you can't in D and D rely on well-known characters like you can for comic books because there aren't any in the wider world. So you have to make your own, and but that opens up opportunities to do things that you might not be able to do if you are relying on James Bond or, right, or Iron Man or all of those things. And it was just it was fascinating to see them sort of working through this process of figuring out how they were going to do those things. Yeah. Yeah. And it was something that they're well acquainted with and they just, they understand what they're trying to do, but yeah, it's super hard. I just watched a movie this weekend on Netflix that uh, was clearly a hugely budgeted thing. Uh, it was like, I don't know, the school of good and evil or something. And I cannot recommend it. Uh, boy, did they have a budget? Boy, did they have intentions? Uh, it did not play well for me. <laughs> I hope other people yeah. enjoy it. And I and all I could think of was the D movie better be nothing like this. <laughs> well, I I think they've I think they've hit onto it and they said it right in this article, which is, you know, we're not going to make an epic fantasy drama. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness, because that that can be down the line, but we're not going to spoof it either. Yeah. Which which thank goodness, right? They talked about Monty Python, you know, being satire, but also being intelligent uh, comedy. And not going for the easy laugh, but going for that deeper laugh. And the other thing that was really fascinating from that article was when they said that the characters in the movie sort of 
typify the different kinds of D&D players, mm. right? So Chris Pine's character is sort of the one that plays for the joke. Yeah. Whereas the paladin is the, the super nerdy character uh, player who is very serious about the whole game and they're not going to laugh and they're not going to break that fourth wall and right. they're going to be all about the mission and, and their character and doing the right thing. Yeah. I thought that's, the that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let's down plan, yeah. down mission. Yeah. Yeah. That is really smart. Oh man. I'm excited for this thing. I really? Am. Yep. Yep. I, I'm trying to dampen my enthusiasm. I'm trying to keep it in perspective. It's going to be okay. Taos. It's going to be okay. Yep. Get, go in with, with expectations where they should be. Yeah. Now, speaking of expectations, we now know that Acquisitions Incorporated are going to be kickstarting their upcoming series. And in fact, by the time this show drops, that Kickstarter may already be up and running. Um, Jerry Holkins and Mike Rahulik of Penny Arcade, they're launching this Kickstarter on March 8th to fund the new Series 2 of Acquisitions Incorporated recorded series. Uh, Mike's going to come back as Jim Darkmagic. The story is going to be sort of a reboot with a fresh start for those existing characters. And the Kickstarter is probably going to include a book that Jerry is writing on the origins of Jim and Omen's friendship mm. or partnership. I don't know <laughs> if I can go as far as friendship. Yeah. Friendship is a lot of things. That's yeah. interesting. I, I'm so excited. There's a nice uh, article that we're, we link to in the in the notes. And then we also link to the, the Kickstarter um, so you can go there and check it out. But yeah, I'm excited to see how this goes. I, I enjoyed it. They did a, a a sort of series like this where they, which was all about uh, going into a Dwarven Enclave, which we ended up using part of the, that Dwarven Enclave. We used it in our in our book, in the Act Inc. book. Um, but, mm -hmm. but that whole series was really kind of neat because it was sort of an intimate way of, of when you're when you're not live and you're playing like that it's 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 a nice environment and it was interesting the the reporter in this interview at one point something asks them about sort of how they approach the game kind of comparing to other streams and they're like we're not trying to make like a fancy stream we just want to play with our friends and have that be the story right of the, the how what it feels like to play with your friends and i think Akink has always managed to do that right to feel like it's mm -hmm. it's just what the game yeah. they want to play they're not doing it for an right. audience even if there is an audience there right yeah they're, they're not dismissive of those other things those are fine forms of entertainment but you know they say we just want to play and record it and sort of have that have the the almost the players be the the fun yeah. uh or as much of the fun as as any other part of the game. Yep. The first RPG created by the National Research Institute is now available. Tell me about this, Teos. Yeah, so it's it's really hard from the webpage to exactly put all the data points together. But in Japan, the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan has created what must be the first time that any National Research Institute has created an RPG, and it is called Sandcastle. The Sandcastle RPG, there's a webpage there. You can download all the rules for free. And the game has nothing to do with astronomy, but the hope is that you playing this game will cause you to think about what this National Research Institute is doing and sort of further its ways. And they, they sort of share it in a hope that other national research institutes will take this RPG and use it as well. I thought it was all very fascinating, but hey, cool. You got a free RPG and uh, and you can think about astronomy. <laughs> that was super yeah. interesting. Yeah, that that is that is odd. But hey, you know, good for them for uh, rec recognizing role-playing games yeah. uh, place in, in society now. Yeah. So... Speaking of role-playing games, if you are going to play a very specific class in D&D, we now have a list of books that you should read to get you into the frame of mind to play that class to its fullest. So this bookriot.com article recommends two books for every D&D class, including Matt Mercer's Blood Hunter. Uh, the article talks about why the book is helpful in fleshing out your type of character and serves as a way to pick up interesting novels that you may have missed in your reading life. I haven't read many of the books or any of the books. Well, I shouldn't say none, but very few of those books yeah. have I read. But uh, 
it looked like an interesting way to come at D&D from either direction, either, oh, I yeah. just read this book and now I want to play a character like that. Or I've always, I'm always playing rogue, so let me read about a rogue in this fantasy setting. Yeah, I thought it was pretty neat. Um, I, I had not read a lot of these books either, though I know other people were talking about the article had. Um, but I do like when I read uh, a, a novel and I can go, oh, yeah, this 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 character is this class, right? This this protagonist mm-hmm. is from this class and that could inspire my plays in future things. So I thought it was a very neat idea for an article. And Cobalt Press is doing a bunch of things, starting with Dungeon 23. Uh, they've been blogging. A dungeon is part of the Dungeon 23 concept where you design a dungeon room each and every day of the year. Uh, this blog includes design tips, making it interesting for designers looking for a few lessons in dungeon design. And at the end, you will get your very own 5e dungeon. That's a clever take on it, right? Like, let's not just do Dungeon 23, but let's tell you how we do Dungeon 23 and why we do that. And so you can pick up some lessons. That's, I thought that was very smart of them to do it that way. Speaking of Cobalt Press, I got an email as an original backer of the Tomo Beast on Kickstarter. And it told me that after eight years, it was high time for Cobalt Press to update the original Tome of Beasts. Um, so that's what they're doing. They offered backers of that original Tome of Beasts a discount. But on their website, they have a page up now where you can pre-order or get more information on this updated Tome of Beasts, which will include errata, streamlined mechanics, 11 new creatures like the Ashwalker, the Plain Watcher, and the Ancient Cave Dragon, uh, new tables for creature type and terrain, and new monster art and more. And I thought this is really interesting because... Honestly, when they started, when when Cobalt Press started their Black Flag initiative, I thought, okay, so here's what they're going to do. They're going to put out Black Flag, and then they're going to say, and here are all these Tome of Beasts and Creature Codexes we've done, and now we're going to update them to to Black Flag stats. And I was like, okay, yeah, that, that would be smart. They're, they're pulling this string early here before Black Flag is ready, and I'm wondering if that's to get money to actually make black flag or if if it's if it's maybe they're maybe that's what they're doing is they're updating it for black flag but they're just not saying it i would say it if that's what they were doing because that would bring more interest but it was just it was an interesting concept for me it's very fascinating one of the things that i'm really curious about especially with kyle brink saying on all the interviews you know this is 5.5 not 6e is that 3.5 caused massive upheaval in how people sold things. And I've seen um, there have been a number of sort of roving discounts on D&D products, including, I mean, absurdly low Amazon prices on things like uh, Van Richten's. Right? It was such a fantastic book. You know, we reviewed it on our show. Um, but, but then, you know, now you see, well, you know, what exactly is Cobalt Press doing as a result of sort of their efforts to do a new thing and perhaps looking at how 6e 5.5 whatever we want to call it will will shape so it, it'll be interesting to see what various companies do whether they try to sort of update move streamline but this is really surprising i would have thought they would have done this you know after the uh 1D version came out or after mm-hmm. black flag did right so you could have done both things and and this is a high price point for this particular item. Like this is an eighty dollar book for this yeah. limited edition that they're calling it. So it's kind of surprising that that they are doing this. But you know, it has a different cover and everything. But wow, yeah, yeah. And speaking of Black Flag, soon we should be seeing the second playtest packet. Um, they haven't released the packet yet, at least as of this point. But they talk about different magic circles. They're going to have the first eight levels of the wizard and the fighter and they're going to have a new fail forward luck mechanic that is going to replace inspiration mm-hmm. so we'll have some interesting things to read over there uh when it comes out yeah and that's an interesting strategy because i think they are managing to be the sort of loudest group out there sort of making a new you know a new D and D like game, right. You know, that that's mm-hmm. clearly obviously sort of we're remaking D and D and, and they're, they're grabbing maybe the most headlines 
out of the various efforts. And so it'll be really interesting to see how this does, how it succeeds or fails, you know, in, in terms of that approach. I'm fascinated by it. Yep. Yeah. And staying in the realm of Kickstarter, we have two Kickstarters in progress, one that Teos worked on and one that I worked on. Uh, Teos, you want to take us through Forge of Foes one time real quick here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are super, super happy for everybody who's backed Forge of Foes, who listens to the show. Thank you. Really hugely appreciate it. If you haven't checked it out, please take a look. Uh, Forge of Foes, the Lazy DMs Forge of Foes for 5e. And I recently posted a video, uh, and I did one the week before, but uh, a video walking through how you take monster powers, which is an aspect of this book. Um, and, and, and I took various monsters, like I took an ogre, a fire giant, a wraith, a skeleton. Uh, and I even took fate monsters, a shadow dark monster, and, um, and talked about Knight's Black Agents as examples of how you can take monster powers and modify these monsters to make them really cool in your game. So you can check out that video and see how I did that. Uh, the book overall, it has, has a bunch of these monster powers. It also has all kinds of advice on everything from modifying monsters, making the most of the monsters you have, uh, encounter design, terrain, you know, you name it a lot. Everything that has to do with kind of how monsters would show up in your game. And on my side, the there's about... When this show drops, there will be about a week left in the Grim Hollow Valakin Clans Kickstarter, where we take a deep look at the Valaka region of Grim Hollow of the world of Etheris. Inside is a gazetteer of that area, new raiding mechanics that are sort of a mini war game that you can play uh, based on the idea of raiding. We have 12 new martial maneuver subclasses. So one for each of the main 5e classes. We have new transformations. If you're familiar with Grim Hollow, uh, you'll know what that means. New threats, new monsters. And then there's a full campaign also attached to the Kickstarter. So you can check that out. There's a link in the show notes as well. So thank you for your support so far. And we'll uh, we'll see you in the funny papers, as they say. <laughs> But now it's time to get to our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons. And we are going to do our next dive into a game other than D&D to look at its design, to look at its gameplay, and to figure out if there are any lessons that we can learn about game design or game management, game mastering, dungeon mastering from these games. And what game are we going to do now? We are going to do the game Fate. Fate Core? But we will also talk about Fate Accelerated and Fate Condensed. Uh, Teos, do you want to tell us a little bit about Fate? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fate is a game that, you know, as I was, I've played it a number of times. Um, and I've, I've certainly read a number of their settings and used a number of settings. And as I was reading over this again in preparation for the show, I was struck by how influential this has been. You know, I kept on reading pieces and going, wow. You know, Numenera really played off of this or wow, D&D really played off of this, you know, just amazingly influential. So it was written by Fred Hicks and Rob Donahue uh, with the first edition published in 2003 based on a system called Fudge and Fudge, the freeform universal donated gaming engine started in 1992. Um, it's kind of amazing how this was sort of like open content way back when, right? Yep. Um, and so, yeah, in, in 2011, Evil Hat did a big Kickstarter to fund the newest version of Fate called Fate Core. And this was the book that really opened a lot of people's eyes, people who weren't into that uh, fudge sort of background. And this was 2013. It had over 10,000 backers pledging over $433,000. So that was monumental for 2011. That's, you know, obviously over 10 years ago. Um, they made slightly different versions of the base game. Um, Fate Accelerated being one that's played a little easier. And recently they put out Fate Condensed, which is sort of a more condensed version of Fate Core. Um, and, and, and But is it not as... I don't know much about Fate Condensed. Is that less condensed than Accelerated? You know what I mean? It is, it is, it is 
less condensed than accelerated okay. accelerated yeah. is a very quick version yeah. condensed just sort of update some of the fake core rules to make gameplay a little more smooth yeah i, I love the I, I love the design of um the the fate books um it has you know simple art inside um uh, but mm -hmm. but it's really nice layout. I love how things are indexed and 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 all of it. it it's a really quite a joy to read. Uh, and the same is true of the Fate Accelerated, which I also have. Um, mm -hmm. I greatly appreciate that. Um, and what I like, you know, what's interesting about Fate is that it is a system for playing really any type of game. And this manifests both in how it's written, where you know it's literally saying, think about what kind of story you want to tell, and that story could be medieval fantasy it could be sci-fi it could be you know anything um and then you also have all of these different games that work off of fate like atomic robo spirit of the century dresden files which i really really like based on the the novels and comics um and and you worked on some fate uh setting as well yep. right yeah with encoded designs we did a fate version of a game called part-time gods we called it part-time gods of fate of all things and it really was a fun way for me as i did sort of the editing and de development on the back end but it was a great way to see a different game in progress and see how this system could be so flexible and yet still so good and you could add to it or subtract from it in ways that fit the genre that you were working in yeah. And you have a comment here about about comparing sort of D&D &D and fate and, and sort of the freedom you have with your character that I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where I said that, but I uh, will. Uh... <laughs> I'm highlighting it. Oh, right there. Yeah. yeah. So we had this conversation on the Eldritch Lorecast maybe last week or two weeks ago, where it was, how do you teach D&D &D to new people? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I said was, do not go into it saying you can do anything you want. That's one of the selling points. And it's I've said that hundreds of times teaching new players D&D &D, because it's sort of true based on a board game or a video game. But D&D &D doesn't want you to do anything you want. You have powers and attributes and things on your character sheet and the game expects you to use those things in a certain way. So if you say to a player, you're playing a wizard, you have all these spells, but you can do anything you want. And when they're facing the dragon, they run up and try to stab it with a dagger. <laughs> right. That's not you can do that, but that's not what the game wants you to do. Fate and its its variations want you to do anything. Mm -hmm. Because the rules are there in a way that will allow that to happen uh, through storytelling. So uh, that's why I like to teach people fate when they have been playing D&D to show them not just what makes fate great, but what makes D&D great and how that plays out by the rules for D&D. Yeah, good point. And, and that's one of the things I love about playing games like Fate is that when you when you see kind of how open it is, then you also want to look at your D&D game and think about how to create more of that openness as well, which which mm -hmm. I think is something that we saw in 5e's design as compared to previous yeah. editions, where um, not only had, had the D&D design team played through all of the editions of D&D, but they played a lot of other RPGs and said, okay, let's try to create openness. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they succeeded and sometimes they failed, right? Part of the concept of inspiration yeah. was this idea of trying to guide you off of what you could argue are the aspects of your character background, but it doesn't right. work in the right, in the same way, you know, it may work. Exactly. Because it's a different game. Yeah, because it's a much different game, and we'll talk about that. And that brings me to my final point before we delve mm -hmm. into the mechanics, which is when you play these other games, you may see mechanics that are fun and exciting and different and really catch your imagination. Before you just lift them out and try to use them in D&D, &D, you have to remember that they these are different, very different systems. These are very different games. I think of the initiative system from some games where the players can choose who goes next and you just do that. 
you know, that's a fun system for certain games. You try to do that in a D&D game and you run into problems because of the rules and the mechanics of D&D and how the game expects the game loop to run. Mm -hmm. So if you do pick up mechanics from other games, totally try them. But just think about it. Think it through. Think about how it's actually going to work with the mechanics and the rules of D&D yeah. as opposed to the rules and mechanics of the game that you took it from. One, one thing I like to do when I test things like this is I will come up with a concept that's weird for like my game. So maybe the game session is, you know, in the strange wizard's uh, laboratory with multiplanar energies firing off. And so the, it gives us a mental reason why we're trying out some weird rules. And at the end of it, we can talk yeah. about how did they play out and what do we want to do post the wizard's laboratory as to what the real world <laughs> right. is like. Right? Yeah, yeah, very true. So let's dig into the mechanics. The design of fudge was crowdsourced from online forums in the early 90s. And characters had traits or skills or abilities that would vary depend on your game setting. So obviously you did not have, right, uh, spaceship driving if you're playing a medieval fantasy game whereas you might not have magic casting if you were in a uh you know in a game of espionage in the 1980s so those traits were given descriptors of terrible poor mediocre fair good great and superb so those are seven things and so you could be terrible at something you could be superb at something and you described your character that way and then there were numbers that translated to those values. So terrible was minus three, poor minus two, mediocre minus one, fair zero, good plus one, great plus two, superb plus three. And fate took those uh, not exact things, but they use a very similar system. So think about the things you can do. You don't have attributes like you would in D&D. You have skills or abilities or traits that could be different from game to game. And they are just the things you can do. And those numbers tell you how well you do those things. Yeah. And, and you get to pick, you know, do you want one of them to be sword fighting? And do you want another of them to be, you know, Japanese history? And do you want another to be, you know, um, uh, high society, right? And, and But you don't yep. get very many. And so mm -hmm. those are the things you're using yeah. to describe, but then you apply them more widely, right? Um, you know, maybe your sword fighting can can also tie into sort of some tactical assessment or whatever, depending on, on mm -hmm. how your GM works with you. But, but you yep. have a little more latitude because it's describing who you are. It's not, a there are no, you know, there's not a list of skills that you're choosing from, right? So it's right. more open, and, but also and, discussed. Right. <laughs> and there there can be, a long list of skills. If you, when you're designing the world with the players and the game master, you can talk about, do we need a skill for driving vehicles? Well, no, not really, because we're in a medieval fantasy and we're not going to have cart chases. Uh, we're not going to fly, you know, airships. So let's not have that. But we might want to add uh, diplomacy to it because we do want an intrigue-based game. So you can... You can get pick up settings as part of fate that do have a list of skills, abilities, traits, etc. Um, but if you're building your own world with your players, you don't have to start with a set list. I was going to let you talk us through oh, aspects. Very good. Yeah, aspects are really one of the things that fate is, is super well known for, and aspects are found in all types of of, of in all aspects of the game. Aspects and aspects. Um, so from campaign setting to character creation to links between characters, aspects are a, a short phrase that describes something important. Uh, it can be an encounter. So it can be things like the grassy knoll. Uh, it can be something like the jagged rocks that are there, right? Those can be aspects. Um, they can be things that are about your character. They can uh, describe something important about a trouble that you have, right? So owes money to the mob. Um, it can be something that is mannerism oriented, right? Quick to anger, um, cool headed, uh, cool under pressure, right? Could be one that's, that's positive. Um, you know, owes a bond to so-and-so, right? As another player character. 
Um, all these can be aspects that exist, and the aspects can exist at the campaign level, the encounter level, the character level. Right? So campaign level can be something like when we played Dresden Files, you know, we had um, the city is run by wizards, right? And, and that established a real uh, important part of what the city was like and, and what, what our campaign would play off of. And they're super fascinating. In general, an aspect, uh, you spend uh, a fate point to invoke that aspect. And this gives you either a reroll or plus two to, to your uh, roll that you've already made. Mm-hmm. And so when you sit down to create a character, in, in D&D, the first thing you might do is say, all right, I know I'm going to be a rogue. So when I roll my ability scores, I'm going to, or when I build my character, I'm going to put my highest in dexterity, my second highest in charisma, because I want the rogue to also be charming or sneaky or or wise, if you put it in wisdom. With fate games, you sit down to build your character. The first thing you do is you build their aspects. And the first aspect is called the, the high concept. So this high concept is who your character is in like 12 words or less. So when you build these things, you want to remember that you will be able to use fate points to go back to that aspect, invoke it, to make it both part of the story and part of the mechanics of the game. But one cool thing about aspects is you have a certain number of fate points, but you spend those and you could run out. Mm-hmm. To get fate points back, what you, what can happen is either you take basically a, a long rest, right? You end a, a adventure scene. Yeah. or a scene or whatever, or you allow your aspects to be used against you called compelling. So for my main aspect, I might say something like, I'm the fifth best swordsman in all of the kingdom. So when I'm playing and I'm fighting and I really need that extra plus two, I can say, well, I'm the fifth best swordsman in all the kingdom. So I'm going to spend a fate point to get a plus two on this, uh, on this fight I'm in. However, the game master could also at some point come to me and say, well, you know what? You're in the middle of this battle. You're the fifth best swordsman in the land guess who the fourth best swordsman is <laughs> this person that you're fighting so what what happens then is the game gets harder right the story gets more complex more complicated but i get a fate point for that that lets me later change things in my favor again so there's this sort of storytelling currency that's happening that makes fate and it's it's uh, clones a great storytelling driven game as opposed to the mechanics driving the story. It's the storytelling that really drives the story. And, and if you've played the Cipher System games, you've seen how they took uh, this and, and used it in, in their own way. Um, but it is a really fascinating concept, and it's one I really like. I like uh, how how Spycraft sort of had an iteration of this idea of, of that idea that that when the DM, the DM can make something harder, but the player gets something for it. Is a really fun mechanic in this kind of game. Uh, doesn't quite translate to D and D that well. I haven't seen a good translation of it that that really truly works. Um, but this yeah. this compel system is really one of the keys that makes Fate super interesting to play. Yeah, and, and, and it's it's, it's important. Yeah. Well, it's important to have this sort of system in these story based games yeah. because. With D&D, there's sort of micro transactions in <laughs> combat, right? It's yeah. I hit, I hit, I miss, I hit, I miss, I hit, I miss. The monster hits, misses, 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 hits, misses. And it's it's very granular. With games like this, you need the ability to change the story because so much could hinge on just one role. So much could hinge on just one thing. So you need to give the players that ability to get themselves out of hot water with these fate points whenever they need to, while at the same time complicating their lives in fun and dramatic ways on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. And, you know, um, did we mention the dice? I don't think we talked about the dice. We have not mentioned the dice because (laughs) the dice are very, they're very important. Uh, 
So, you know, we, we talked about the skills mm-hmm. and if you're great at something, you get a plus four. And in the base fate game, you can choose one of your skills at great, two at good, three at fair and four at mediocre. So plus four, plus three, plus two, plus zero. And they call that sort of the, the skill pyramid. Uh, so you're going to be great at one thing, mediocre at a bunch of things. But those numbers, plus four, plus three, plus two, plus zero, only come into play because of the way the randomizers work. Obviously, in D&D, you roll a 20-sided die, add numbers, compare it to something. With fate, you use fate or fudge dice, and you use four of them. What's the difference? On On a fate die, there are six sides. Two of those sides have a plus sign. Two of those sides have a minus sign and one side or two sides are blank. So you roll them and you add the pluses and subtract the minuses, giving you a number between minus four and plus four. That's that's the total number of swing, swinginess, total amount of swinginess uh, that you can get with your randomizers, with your dice. Then you, so adding plus four to something from minus four to plus four can be very, very significant. Using a fate point to add two to that, to add two to something is very significant when your average die roll is going to come out to a zero. Yeah, and that's something that for the D&D player can be very hard to understand because it's like, well, wait, Amtai is sort of guaranteeing success. And the answer is, well, you, you kind of are in various situations because you are super good at this thing. And that's the story we're telling is of how you're very good at this thing. But there will be lots of situations where you don't get to do that. And that's where, you you know, there's going to be upbeats and downbeats. And, and that's it's a different type of thing. That was something if we, if we end up talking about uh, Gumshoe system, you know, that is one thing that just blew my mind when I played Gumshoe. And, and I was sort of, but I can just guarantee that I'll succeed. It's like, yes, you can. Yeah, in fact, in some situations, you won't roll at all. Like, what? But yeah. But it's amazingly fun to do that right. for this kind of a game. I think it really works really well. Yep. And what the number you're rolling against is either a number derived by the game master who could be rolling an opposed role for a creature, mm-hmm. but there's also this ladder of results and those also have words associated with them. So if something is easy, you're, you're shooting for like a zero or a negative one. I don't have the chart right yeah, in front of yeah. me, but it, you know, and it goes up to like godlike difficulty, which might be like a plus eight. So you can get to those numbers by using fate points, by doing other things that we'll talk about, or, or if you're really, really, really great at something and you roll really, really well, um, you can get there, but you have a more of a control over that. Yeah, and that legendary, you know, to terrible to legendary scale also helps establish sort of how you did because if when you when you subtract out the uh, the, what you needed versus what um what you attained and you get that end result of the pluses or minuses that you got, um, that tells us you know you did fair, and so that helps us describe the narrative. Or if you did great or superb, right, then it starts being a different thing, and that that gives everybody a tool by which to describe the outcome, which is really interesting. Yep. In in Fate Accelerate, I just want to mention, rather than choosing specific skills, they have what they call approaches. And these are just adjectives that show the way your character would approach a problem. So you don't have a skill in swordsmanship. You don't have a skill in right? Picking locks. You have, you can do things carefully, cleverly, flashily, forcefully, quickly, or sneakily or sneaky. And uh, I think it's sneakily. And so then your character is, it's a flashy character. So they will do things. If they are able to do things in a flashy way, they have a greater chance of success rather than something that they may have to do forcefully. So you and the, the game master and the players have a discussion about, okay, you want to flashily knock down this door. How do you do that? And if you can't justify that narratively, you have to use forceful because that's how you break doors down. So <laughs> not everyone can always be great at everything unless there is a way that they can make that adjective, adverb, flashy, forcefully, 
um, work in in each situation. And that's something about the the simplicity of this game and and the the nature of the aspects that are in a scene that that are between the characters that are in the setting is it it, it really helps encourage you to play according to your nature rather than your build, especially because there's so little to your build. And so and your build is sort of these open things. So you end up playing in those ways that are that are you're really digging into your nature constantly. And, you know, I think any of us have played in a D&D campaign where there's that one person that really never does anything about their backstory or anything about, you know, they're, they're just playing the numbers, right? And they're having a great time and that's right. fun and we can have fun playing with them, but they are just not doing that. And, and these, the way this is all set up adds that aspect, right? And I think that's why you see fifth edition trying to create these various parts to your background because they're trying to encourage this kind of play. They don't, they don't quite hit it right, but, but it's, it's this, when you play these kinds of games, you see how important the way you've set up the definition of the character and how that ties into the engine becomes. And, and you see this real, it's really good with fate. Players will dig into those aspects of the encounter. They'll dig into the aspects of their characters, uh, the aspects of the enemies, right? That, that really comes out and it creates a lot of flavor. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about the the character creation and we talked about the mechanics. So what can you do? Right. What's the game loop? What what is what happens when you're actually playing? So when you try to do things, there are four actions that you can take. Those actions are attack. If you are trying to physically or mentally hurt something, attack is doing damage. Defending is trying to stop the damage from affecting you while you are being attacked. Overcome is trying to do a thing that needs to be overcome. Picking a lock, uh, jumping over uh, a chasm, mm-hmm. those sorts of things where you're, it's not necessarily an attack or defense, but you're trying to do a thing that's not an attack or defense. And the last one is actually the most important one, but it's the one that D&D players ignore the most because it's the least important part of D&D, and that's called create an advantage. So with create an advantage, what you're doing is during a scene, you are trying to do something with your character that will make it easier for your characters, either your character or your group of characters or people on your side Mm. to do the thing that they're trying to do. So you may try to uh, disorient your opponent by singing them a a battle hymn that that is known to cause confusion in enemies. Mm. Uh, You may try to throw sand in their eyes to give that temporary advantage to your Topple furniture. Right. Or pull a right topple furniture, pull swing on the chandelier, mm-hmm. uh, pull boxes down onto the enemy to knock them prone. Uh, all of those things are creating an advantage. And what players who normally play D&D fail to realize is that the way the numbers work out, there are times when the only way you are going to win is if you can create an advantage because that advantage can turn into an aspect and that aspect is something that you can invoke often for free without spending fate points. So there may be battles where you can try to hit the dragon with your sword and even if you roll really well and are really strong, you might be only doing one shift of damage to them, one We'll talk about damage later, but you know you can only basically do one point of damage or no points of damage, even if you roll well. So you need to bump up these advantages, create these advantages, and then allow someone to use fate points and use their best abilities and take advantage of all of these temporary aspects, which are called boosts, to get that number way, way up there to do a bunch of damage all at once. And that all, again, you know, creates that kind of play that's very creative and imaginative, and it ends up being aligned with your character as well. You know, my character is the, you know, bullheaded cop. Well, I, you know, I'm going to press all my weight against the, the this this bookcase and topple it over so that the enemy is pinned underneath, which allows us to actually damage it, right? 
and and those kinds of things end up all playing together and creating this imaginative play, which is a lot of fun. Yep. So those things are important. Another aspect of your, not aspect, I can't use aspect. Another <laughs> element of your character is a stunt. So stunts, stunts are special traits that your character has that change the way a skill works, adds a bonus to a particular action in special circumstances, or creates some other rule exception. In accelerated, they work very well because there's a template for it, and this template comes right st- is was either comes straight from or was stolen directly by the cyber system because it's you know because I am blank, yeah. I get blank advantage when I do this particular thing. Uh, so because I'm a loner, I get a plus two to create an advantage when I sneakily uh, stay out of sight of my allies. Uh, you know, so that's a very specific situation where you get a very specific plus in you know when you when you do these things. Uh, so that is another part of your character. Equipment might uh, give you this bo- these bonuses. Other things may give you these stunts. Yeah, and they're they're neat stunts. They they function a bit like feats, a bit mm-hmm. like features in a class there there are a little bit of everything and and you only get but so many so they end up being really significant right if if you choose a, a particular type of fighting thing that says a lot about what you're choosing to do with your character versus if you choose something that's social right or that's somehow utilitarian um the, these these stunts end up being a a big part of of defining who you are and the relationship between them and one of the things about character creation is is that you get to work together to do that so you you have good overlaps mm-hmm. Yep. And one of the things, a, a, a criticism I hear from very crunchy mechanical D&D type players is that it turns into sort of a game of mother may I, mm-hmm. right? You, you're trying to do the thing that's most powerful and you make up some cockamamie <laughs> excuse why this should work. And it, it can turn into that. But with a really experienced game master and a really experienced set of players, the storytelling is so good in these things mm-hmm. because they're, you're working hard to tell the story that will lead to the outcome that you want rather than just relying on the same numbers and the same die rolls over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And the, a good game master in fate will say no. We'll say no, but rather than yes and all the time. Right. Like if, say, if I no, say that I'm religious, yeah. I can't just pray every single time I do anything, right? And then right. say, can I invoke the fact that I'm praying to my and no. <laughs> God right. stops exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Now, if you want to set the situation up where you're fighting the the dragon in a temple rather than fighting in the dragon's lair, mm-hmm. then that will kick in. But you have to think ahead. You have to plan ahead like a good writer would plan ahead for a book, for a story, for a movie. Um, You as the player have to be a good writer Mm. uh, to get the most fun out of a game like this. And some it's not for everybody. Uh, In fact, it might not be for a lot of people. But Mm. when you're one of those imaginative, creative players that that like mechanics, but also like to have the story mean something and have your character's background mean something, there is no better game than this. And, and that's a great point, that, that because the game, this is a game that super shines with a great DM, but when you have somebody who would sort of rather be running D&D, right, then, then that's where it becomes mm-hmm. lackluster because the it's not about the joy of the mechanics in some ways, right? The mechanics mm-hmm, are right. there to help you launch everything else that you're going to be doing at the table together. And and mm-hmm. that's that's the part you need to work on actively rather than your character build chunks or your, mm-hmm. you know, the particular die rolling that you're doing, which feature you're activating and what way for mechanical benefit. D&D makes you yeah. super happy that way. And a number of other games do right where if all you do is roll dice, take damage, deal damage, that's fun in the way that a board game is mm-hmm. fun. And then you get to do these other things, too. But games like Fate, it matters. That part isn't there as as solidly as importantly, and so so the the where you're spending your time is different, and you want to dig into that and have the DM that helps you go there. 
Yep. The last thing I want to mention about fate is the stress and the consequences, because I think that's an important part of the game. Uh, and so the stress is your ability to take damage. So when you take damage, uh, you mark off boxes on your character sheet called stress. And that's marking off a piece of stress allows your character to keep going. Uh, another way that you can mitigate the damage that you take are called consequences. These consequences allow you to soak up more damage, but they put an aspect on you that can be used against you. So if you're fighting a dragon uh, and it bites you or hits you with its tail and you say, well, I just took four points of damage I don't have enough stress boxes left. I'm going to take a consequence, a four point mm -hmm. consequence. Okay. What are we going to call it? Okay. It's, it's a, I have a mild concussion now. So that's an aspect that I write on my character sheet that will remain for a certain amount of time based on how many points of damage that I'm offsetting. And the game master can now say, well, you just took that mild concussion on your next turn. You think you're casting a spell. Guess what? Your spell, you're at a minus two on that spell because you have a mild concussion. Right. But here's a fate point that that you can use later uh, to to offset or to better control the story. And so that answers for me that that great question we get from players a lot or DMs a lot once they start thinking about D and D, which is why am I the same at one hit point and full hit points? Yeah, and and, and in yeah. in fate you're not. Yeah. In fate, you have this ability to take wounds, to be damaged. Um, and the other good thing about stress and consequences is that depending on the kind of game you're playing, this could be physical damage. This could be mental damage. You could have stress. You could have financial stress if you're playing a, a finance-based role-playing game. It could be heartbreak, could be... Yeah one of the stress boxes that you, yeah. and if you take heartbreak damage, right, you you become less likely to be able to communicate uh, with people better, yeah. You know, yeah, totally. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that it, it, it answers one of the problems of D&D, &D, which is when you do the overwhelming battle that you didn't super realize was overwhelming. And the only answer is, well, a TPK or death or run away. But this creates a whole nother way to handle those situations. Like, yes, this is too hard a threat, which will result in consequences, but can still yield in victory because it's not just about running out of hit points, right? So you defeated the dragon, but you were left with this thing that, that shapes you and influences you. And, and, and over time, you can get rid of these consequences, right? It usually takes a while. But... You're going to remember that it's going to be part of your story and probably even if it, if it eventually lifts, you know, you no longer have the concussion, you no longer have the, you know, fear of dragons, whatever it is that you decide to take. Um, you you now are, are still it's part of your story and it becomes a real part of how you identify with your characters. Really cool. Mm -hmm. And how how stress, how damage is taken is essentially the amount of damage you take is the number above which your defense was threshold was beaten. So if, if the monster got a plus six for its bite attack and your defense was a plus two, the difference there of four points is the damage that you take. And you can also take less damage, like me as the game master. I could do less damage to you, but create a temporary aspect, a boost that says, well, you actually you only took two points of damage, but the room around you is now on fire where the dragon breathed and I'm going to be able to, well, you can use it. So can I mm -hmm. to, I can use it for free. You could use a fate point to say, well, you know, since the room is on fire, which you created game master, the other enemies that just ran into the room are going to take damage as they run through that fire. So it builds up the ability of everyone to tell a story together rather than just being told a story that you're reacting to. Yeah. So that is the mechanics of fate. Now there's a whole other part of fate that we haven't really, we've hinted at, but we haven't gotten into yet, which we are going to tackle next week. And that is 
how you come together as a group to plan your campaigns and plan your characters. And this different element of fate and fate-based games is something that is very applicable to D&D, or it can be if you choose to make it so. So we're going to give its own separate segment to give that part of fate its due. Awesome. Do you have anything before you want before we head out here? No, it's great. I'm I'm looking forward to that because that's actually my favorite part of Fate is is the uh, campaign and character creation pieces that we're going to talk about next week. So I'm, I'm looking forward. Excellent. So thank you so much to all our patrons out there who keep the lights on, and thank you to our listeners who make us get up uh, every Wednesday <laughs> and put this together because we love to talk about games and we want to hear what you think about games. Thanks to our master of dungeon supporters. Uh, we give a special shout out to our master of realms supporters in our show notes and to our masters of the multiverse patrons. This shout out is for you, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy. Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Christian Simone Say It Ain't So, Joe <laughs> Tyler, Mateus Valero at Twin Portals. James Walton and Graham Ward. Uh, so thank you to all our listen listeners and patrons. And if you do like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash mastering D D. You can also give us a review on Apple podcast or whatever means you listen to this podcast and you can give comments on YouTube and you can also subscribe there to see us each and every week. So Teos, where can people find your work? Ooh, find me at alphastream.org. Um, my latest blog post is a link to my YouTube channel, AlphaStream, where mm -hmm. you can find the video on exciting monster powers and Forge of Foes. Uh, Sean, where do we best find you? You can find me hibernating in my cave of doom, yeah. uh, which is also called Twitter now, oh, apparently. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, they're having some technical issues there, but I'm there at Sean Merwin, and the podcast is there at Mastering D&D. We're also on Mastodon uh, at Dice Camp, the, the show is. And I am Sean Merwin at Tabletop Social. You can also join our community Patreon. You can leave comments on the YouTube channel or just scream really loud. And if you're on either coast, we might have a chance of hearing you. <laughs> so, Teos, we have fated out. What are we going to do now? Uh, I'm going to beg everyone, allow me to invoke the aspect of supporting our our, uh, our Kickstarters that we have going, because that'll help us greatly. Thank you, everybody. Yes, thank you for all the support. And hey, you know what? Have a fate point.